Hello and welcome back to Parallel Passion. If you enjoyed the show, please share it via Twitter, Facebook, email or wherever your friends are. Every post helps us gain a larger audience. Thanks. Today I'm joined by Piotr Szatkowski, a hacker scientist from Warsaw, Poland. If you went to any European Ruby conference, he's the guy with the mechanical keyboard. We spoke about that, but also photography, being an assistant professor and many other interesting topics. Enjoy! Hi, Piotr. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Hello, Michal. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Uh, excellent. Thanks for having me. I, I know this is a new podcast and I was uh, so happy to discover it. And, you know, being in the like first 20 guests is a huge honor for me. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the honor is mine. I mean, um, whenever I go to any conference anywhere in Europe, like you're there. So you're definitely like one of the most recognizable characters, I guess, of the of the Ruby community. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I don't go to as many conferences I, as I would like to, but I actually do go to conferences mostly to meet people. Uh, and uh, it's always uh, a pleasure and like obviously you know bumping into you is, is always <laughs> a fun time yeah um so wh- why don't you start by um telling what what it is that you do okay um so uh, uh i'm piotr and uh, currently occupying me work life is running rebased which is a 30 people uh, software agency in poland we do ruby and javascript and uh whatever uh, the clients need, which is, you know, sometimes a little bit of C for uh, like embedded uh, firmware, uh, sometimes a bit of Elm, uh, sometimes, you know, Ember, React mostly, uh, Rails, Sinatra, this kind of stuff. And uh, we've been, uh, the, the company is now seven years old, and it's uh, like a really interesting thing to look back how, how far we went and how this all came together. It was three of us that started it hmm. at the beginning, and uh, yeah, and now it's it's thirty people. Yeah, that's uh, it's a quite a nice growth. Yeah, and I uh, I run it with Tomasz Stachewicz, who is the the other co-owner, and uh, yeah, we, we're having a really really good time. And in my other life, that is on a bit of a hiatus now, is I am an assistant professor at the Warsaw University of Technology at the Institute of Telecommunications. And uh, I, uh, I take, did and uh, did research and teaching, and I'm currently on a parental leave, uh, like because uh, you know, like it, it's hard to juggle two jobs and uh, the research part is super exciting but the the teaching part was great but also <laughs> uh, you know was like really really taxing i uh, i sense I, there's a there's a story there <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah multiple ones i do sometimes go to my uh, faculty and do like a short lecture there and these are like 22 23 year, year old people and i notice a severe lack of interest from them and uh, every year it's sort of worse and i am wondering if it's if it's like a only my faculty thing or did you notice that as well uh, i definitely did notice that as well and uh, you know this is also on the uh, on the other hand it's like every teacher i had was at some point has this thought like oh the students are not as good as they were in our times and mm-hmm. not as uh, as attentive but also, uh, you know, I think so. So I also did some uh, courses at the university where I teach people from companies, for example, who are sent into 
like additional courses that our university provides. And those people were like, most of them were much more attentive. They, they were so much more interested in actually getting the knowledge. So I think there is a, to some extent, there is this uh, kind of default approach that I'm on a, uh, you know, day studies. This is something I'm supposed to do and I don't necessarily do it that voluntarily as I would think. And I remember this being, you know, 19 years old student where, you know, I was grudgingly going to the university to classes that were compulsory and mm -hmm. like sitting through them just to, you know, eventually get my degree. Yeah. And also, uh, I think the mindset changes a lot, but I still, there are always at least a few people who are actually interested and they, they can ask a question that, that puts you in a, like, uh, you know, uh, in a, in a hard position as well. So, so <laughs> it's not always like uh, everything is super, uh, super, uh, easy, but, but uh, yeah, in, in general, uh, also it's a huge effort, at least for me to make the topic interesting, mm -hmm. but it also pays off. Like we, we had, uh, end of semester, uh, grading of the, the teachers. And it's, it's always like super nice to, to have the, those comments saying that, oh, that was interesting. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, it was worth waking up for 8am classes to, uh, to show up. So I can imagine that feels good. Yeah. But, but there's always a lot of people who, you know, just, just grudgingly come because they feel they have to. But from my perspective, the thing is like, um, it's much easier because I only come there for like a single class, um, about mm -hmm. like an hour and a half, two hours. And um, I basically tell them how it is in reality, how like the, the, the things uh, that I work. And I, I know that if positions were reversed, if I would be in, in like their shoes, I'd have so many questions about how it is to like to work remotely, how it is to um, have this uh, kind of flexibility to work, which uh, at least here is mostly still um, unexposed to most people. I guess not everyone knows you can work like this. And there is just like, yeah, lack of interest, <laughs> lack of anything. They they are there more like prisoners than as students that want to learn something. Definitely. But also like keep in mind that you're interested in that topic yeah. because you're teaching it and you're teaching it because you're interested in that topic. Yeah, For true. them, it's one of, you know, 20 classes and uh, it's... Like it's sometimes it was for me like really hard to kind of internalize that uh, for quite a lot uh, of students. I'm just another two hour block to like pass through that are totally non-interested. And, and at the same time, there's this kernel of super interested people who actually come to this class uh, in particular. So yeah, I, I agree that it's frustrating to, to teach something that you find really interesting to people who seem to be all over the spectrum. <laughs> but also, uh, I think I eventually internalize it. And, you know, I've been doing this for like 13 years, so it's probably easier. <laughs> that's the thing. Like I've been going back ever since I uh, uh, finished my master's. So that's what, seven years, I think. I don't know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, um, where I basically present my master thesis, which was like e-learning and uh, all the interactive learning and stuff like that. Um, and um, I don't know. Yeah, may maybe you're right. Maybe it's just because I am interested personally and I expect at least someone to be interested. But sometimes you have a class where it's just like zero interest, just uh, w watching like blank stares. Yeah, but, you know, to, to a large extent, 
it's the same with talks. Like the things we talk at conferences about are obviously super interesting to us. And uh, fortunately, I'm way too stressed to observe the audience. But when I'm <laughs> not as stressed and I see people, you know, down in their laptops, uh, like I do think that it's better for them to to actually do what they want to do. But it it, it has this little stink of, you know, like maybe I should have made this more interesting. Yep. But at least at conferences, uh, people go there because they're interested, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's at a huge faculty, difference. sometimes it feels like, oh, I've been forced to, this, to do this and here I am. Speaking of conferences, um, were you were you a speaker before you were a professor, or um, how did you get into public speaking? So this is uh, this is a very funny story. Um, so uh, when I finished my PhD, uh, I like the the deadline for sending the PDF to the printer was uh, February twenty eighth. And as any uh, decent uh, IT person, I did it on the last minute and I <laughs> sent it at 9 p.m. And I remember exactly, it was 9 p.m. on February 28th, uh, 2010. And I decided, okay, another stage in my life is done. This time I'm really not going back to the university. I said this exactly <laughs> after doing my master's thesis and I, I, I stayed out for half a year out of university. And then I said, like, I'm definitely not doing anything else at the university. And obviously I stayed as a assistant professor, but I, I decided, like, what can I do? And I realized that there is this Euroco conference that's happening in Krakow, which is in, uh, in Poland, in my home country. And uh, the deadline for Euroco CFP was February 28th. So I had like three hours <laughs> <laughs> to submit a paper. And uh, uh, because I was writing my PhD in Ruby and I did a lot of uh, a lot of profiling, then I decided I'd just submit a paper on like a talk on profiling. And I submitted it. And that was my the, the first Ruby conference that I spoke at. And I remember not having any speaking at a conference uh, experiences before, so I didn't have any of the stress. But at that time, you were already running the Ruby user group, or was that later? I wasn't running the Ruby user group okay. back then. Yeah. Okay. So I arrived at the conference. I, I met Tomasz, who was co-organizing it, mm -hmm. and uh, on the day of the conference, he said, uh, "We have two news for you. First, uh, you're uh, the second one speaking right after Mats. <laughs> second, uh, Mats didn't make a connection, so you're opening the conference." <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. And I was I was so unaware of all the stress of public speaking. So, you know, I was like, well, okay, cool. And then I went to the podium and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fortunately, it was way too late. So, uh, you know, I, I did that. And uh, I don't know. I kind of like the time after and probably like half a talk, half into the talk, and later, when I'm like, the stress levels are uh, have peaked already, mm -hmm. and I actually like it can get any worse. <laughs> and uh, like usually, the second halves of my talks are the parts that I <laughs> much prefer, and they are uh, so much better. So, so that was. And, and before that, I only like I, I did speak at some uh, science conferences because you have to do this to, to to finish your PhD. But those were like you know I, I'm just like a. 10-minute presentation of my paper that absolutely nobody cares about because everybody else is at the conference because they submitted the paper that they're interested in. So that's like 
the other end of the spectrum from from uh, you know students it's like you have a, a group of people and like there are probably two out of a hundred people who actually listen to what you're talking about and they're they're usually your co-authors <laughs> sure but still like also like giving a presentation in front of a class even is is uh, some sort of experience like it's oh definitely i highly recommend it yeah but you do you did it probably like in your high school or at your university even no no you didn't no. have any no. presentations no. No, I envy the U.S. Uh, system that actually pushes people into doing this. I had zero public speaking experience before those. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. We had like uh, we had to do like short papers on topics mm -hmm. and then present it in front of the the class. Uh, I had this maybe you know twice. Yeah, that was like half of my master's uh, classes were were basically like that. Yeah, like we had this. Uh, this at the like uh, the last semester of uh, PhD studies, we had the seminars where we had to present, but it was you know in front of twelve people who are there just because they have to, and they eventually get their turn of presenting their PhD. So it wasn't something like I need to be super engaging because nobody cares. Mm -hmm. So did you get into um, organizing the like Ruby user group after that uh, Ruko experience? Uh, I started showing up. And then, uh, you know, the group was super small. There were times when there was like seven of us and uh, we used to just have a short talk and, and go to, uh, to some pub. And uh, like eventually organically uh, at that point, I just decided, you know, we, we need to figure out better uh, venues and we need to figure out better places. And I was also organizing other meetups at the same time in the uh, NGO IT kind of uh, sphere where we I was organizing some things modeled after Net Tuesdays, which are uh, once a month Tuesday meetings where the uh, tech and NGO worlds collide and people from the NGO get to learn what the IT solutions are that could help them and people mm -hmm. from IT who want to help, you know, social causes and uh, nonprofit organizations can find organizations that are in dire need of help. So... I was running this uh, on a monthly basis, and that experience also really helped. And how did you get into that? Like, why were you interested in NGOs in general? Or uh, yeah, so I, I've been working with NGOs since I was I don't know seventeen, so in late nineties. And uh, my sister was working at a uh, one of the biggest Polish NGOs, the the Battery Foundation. And uh, I did first some, you know, typical gigs of, you know, uh, gluing envelopes. And then I got, uh, like, moved into helping with uh, some technical systems. And then mm -hmm. eventually I, uh, my, my first paid, uh, paid development staff was basically writing a CMS uh, for foundations and NGOs and mostly uh cultural publications because there was a huge program of sponsoring cultural publications for libraries. So, so the Battery Foundation would pay 50% of the annual subscription and then the uh, library would only have to pay the other 50%. And we had a catalog of, I think, 450-ish cultural publications. And we wanted also as many of them as possible to publish online. And I wrote a CMS for that in 1998. Oh, that's... Uh it's a while. Yeah, and then uh, then I worked for uh, I think six or seven years uh, writing a CRM uh, service for 
uh, for NGOs and foundations. Uh, it's called CVCRM. It's a plugin plugin for Drupal and Joomla, mm-hmm. and oh, it lets you times. to yeah <laughs> good times. And, but it was it was you know super fine. It, it was we had two people in San Francisco who were running the uh, the organization. Two people in Warsaw. Nine to twelve uh, people in Mumbai, in India, and you know I did a lot of travel, and it was like super, super fun. But 1998, I probably was making websites in Notepad back then. Like, what was the CMS written in? Uh, PHP. Oh, PHP and Postgres. It was like oh, nice. Yeah, it's uh, everybody else was using MySQL, and we were like, no, Postgres is the way to go and uh, speaking about more technical stuff uh how does one get into mechanical keyboards <laughs> <laughs> uh, for one of the Eurocamps, i think it was Eurocamp 2012 uh, again the deadline for the cfp was looming and i was having a really really good evening and uh, got a little bit tipsy and decided well i already submitted like three other talks but let's submit a talk on mechanical keyboards which were the new topic for me back then and this is the one I, that got accepted. So yeah, uh, there, there is uh, surprisingly many people who know me as the mechanical keyboard person, <laughs> which, which is super funny because it's been all, only two conferences I gave this talk at. Well, but it's not far from the truth. You, you're the guy who brings the keyboard with you uh, to the conference, which I completely understand. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So, so mechanical keyboards are those uh, like external keyboards, external to your laptop, which I assume most people would use nowadays. And uh, they have this notion of uh, having a very strong tactile. Yeah, I, I can demonstrate. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully this is coming through. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I think. Were, were there blue switches? No, they're the green one, but yeah, the sound is the same. The green one. And just now we've lost like 90% of listeners. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I will try to kind of roll them back in. Uh, like there are different kinds of switches. And uh, basically the, the whole thing is that it's uh, once you try using a mechanical keyboard, you either hate it or you love the fact that you have a very uh, physical feedback of when the keys are pressed and there are various kinds of switches and some of them are clicking, some of them are not clicking, some of them have one reaction to your fingers, the others have a different reaction. And yeah, and there's also a whole world of people who make the keys and you can uh, make your keyboard as colorful or as fancy as you want. The, the thing with mechanical keyboards is, is like it's a world that has no end. Like the, the more you go into it, especially like I'm, I'm not much of a Reddit person, but if you go mm-hmm. to like our mechanical keyboards, it's a rabbit hole that can like take all the time you have and probably all the money <laughs> as well. Oh, definitely. Um, because you can have, you can go very esoteric. There are so many designs of keyboards. Um, there are so many ways you can make them work. Um, there's a strong DIY community, like people, like people just making their uh, keyboards themselves. Uh, there are maybe like some parts that they buy and then they just solder it together and then you have like a unique keyboard or or whatever. Oh, definitely. There's also the whole. Uh, you know, one one thing is uh, building the keyboards. The other is like a totally orthogonal layer of programming the keyboards and having all kinds of not only keyboard layouts, but also uh, programming how the keyboards behave. So, yeah, 
I'm, you know, and I'm like extremely conservative. I I'm on my only third keyboard, (laughs) but but still, uh, you know, the, the research uh, you can do before you, before you buy one is, is like really, really huge. So yeah, it's, it's a huge world. Yeah. I started sort of by accident. Um, cause I saw, I think at that moment was dust keyboard two, um, which was only, so there was nothing written on the keys and i didn't even know about mechanical keyboards i know nothing about different switches i only knew like um, i wanted to learn touch typing and the best way to do it is just just like not having anything written down on uh, on my keyboard and and at the time i was living with my parents and let me tell you that's the best way to prevent anyone using your computer oh definitely <laughs> definitely it's uh, i also went this way so my first mechanical keyboards i got those blank keys for for it like and also being a, a Vim person, I had everything was blank except for HJKL, which had those <laughs> arrows. So it was like a little bit of a statement. Uh, I'm, I'm actually like a really, really bad person because I do use arrows and I do want my mechanical keyboards, even the small ones, to have arrows. And I remember the, the shock of the audience when I gave the talk about mechanical keyboards and I said, I, I need arrows because I use them in Vim. And I was like, <gasps> so <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, the the, I'm the same. I have arrows, uh, arrows all the way. It's it's okay to use arrows. Yeah, they're they're you know like that's exactly their purpose. Yeah, no, I, I think programmers are like sort of uh, masochistic, <laughs> sadomasochistic in in a way that like they they want to suffer when they use their tools. Sometimes I actually <laughs> like. Uh, I also think that once you switch to HJKL, I can see how this can be like your muscle memory that. Because it's so ingrained once you actually force yourself to learn it, you defend it in a way that is not necessarily very objective. The issue with the blanks at the list for me was that they were excellent to type as long as I didn't think about it. But the moment I kind of forgot where exactly is the ampersand, Mm. like not being able to find it it quickly was frustrating. So I, I think my next key set will have what is called ninja labeling, which is there are labels, but they are on the front of the key, not at the top of mm. the key, but on the yeah. like vertical layer. So yes, if you that was need my second to... keyboard. <laughs> oh, okay. There, there's also like one step more. You can have them not printed, but actually engraved. So they are not also like easily visible, uh, but are, you know, like etched a little bit. So what's your preferred type of key switches? Uh, so, so my first one had blue ones, which are uh, the, the ones that make a lot of noise and have tactile feedback. And my partner was basically, I can't watch a movie in the next room on headphones, so please get rid of that keyboard. So my second keyboard and the third one as well had brown switches, which do have the tactile feedback, but do not have the like audible clicking. So, And it's still, I think, my preferred, although back then there weren't any green ones and there weren't any clear ones so i will probably want to try those as well have you ever tried anything that's not cherry mx uh because uh, we, we are talking now only about the cherry mx switches which are like yeah the, the most i guess the most known one so the clicky blue ones and the tactile brown ones and then the linear red and black but there's also like matthias or or something yeah i i haven't tried them because back when i was uh buying my third by the time I was buying my third keyboard, Cherry MX were still kind of the staple household name for mechanical mm, keyboard well, switches. I, I, I don't think they're a household name. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Come on, everybody should have a mechanical keyboard. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, definitely. You don't need a computer for that. Um, but the uh, actually, uh, Tomas got a, a keyboard with, I, I think, some other brand of switches. So I'm eager to try it. And uh, I actually probably will try it later today. So <laughs> I'll see how it goes. I, I bought... Uh, the the switcher tester mm -hmm. um, where I have eight switches and it's uh, pretty much whenever I go to a conference and like the topic uh, goes to mechanical switches I, I I bring it out and suddenly you have a couple of very interested people in in it I, I saw your I I just saw your flame graph talk from RubyConf oh. <laughs> uh, Belarus and still like it was nothing about mechanical keyboards and yet you did bring it up so yeah yeah that's true I, I like to bring it up and also because it's uh, it's an interesting interesting thing uh, if you're not exposed to uh, like this even existing it's like oh what is that and um, I so my first one was were brown because like I said I, I didn't know anything about it the second one were blue which I liked but like you said if you're living with someone you cannot use the keyboard mm -hmm. um, and uh, I really wanted the clear ones um, which are clicky but silent mm -hmm. um, uh, but I could not get them in the plank keyboard I have now, mm -hmm. which I love, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. It's also it's very the orthogonal program. one. The yes, small uh, one. You okay. can, I can program 128 layers for some reason, which like <laughs> there's no way. Um, and I couldn't get the clear one, so I got the green ones, which I really like because they are a bit so they are like uh, blue but a bit heavier. Um, and I am a heavy typer, mm -hmm. and on this uh, keyboard, it's actually less noisy because I don't go to the end so much as I did with the blue ones. Right, you don't put them out, I think, yeah, yeah. is the word, yeah. Yeah, I see. That's like you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 such a huge, you know, sudden lingo space of you know bottoming out and blanks and ninja labeling and switches and you know, and why on earth is the standard connector the mini USB? Like when will this change? Like not the micro USB that, uh, or are you is. know Bluetooth maybe or just Bluetooth? Yeah, so uh, you know, uh, I, I think by now Bluetooth slowly, at least in my experience, becomes stable enough to for me to actually try a Bluetooth keyboard. But you know, three years ago, it would be I think at least a little bit of a frustrating experience because uh, you know the, the Bluetooth connectivity issues and those little lags and so on were were quite frustrating. But yeah, I think Bluetooth went a long way. And uh, for example, with, you know, photography is uh, like both you and me do uh, photography with actual cameras. So <laughs> like, I, I think we're slowly, you know, the, the odd people out in, in most situations because people just use their phones. But actually being able to easily transfer a photo now and then from your camera to anything that you can post it on further so your phone your tablet is, is a good thing and uh, it's uh, for example my camera is only doing wi-fi where it actually creates a private hotspot and pairs oh, yeah. with the phone over wi-fi i know and you have to use some stupid app because yes. like only it works with that app it's like oh, yes so you know i'm i'm so happy that all the new models of of uh, this camera have actually went bluetooth and uh, i can't wait for you know actually having good reason to upgrade because i i am actually do 
try to keep my gas, which is gear acquisition syndrome at bay. And, uh, I only, uh, I only buy new gear when I have like a really good reason. Like I spent at least 24 hours, you know, thinking that I would like to buy this. So, uh, but yeah, um, joking aside, I actually got, got, uh, visibly better at not buying the the latest models of my camera now and uh yeah so at, at, at the same time you know i would love to have bluetooth for example because it's it's just so convenient when you want to uh you know j just want to share something quickly but you want this to be a good photo and you like every time i have to do this mental dance of do i want to take with my camera and then spend like three minutes trying to sync it up to my phone or do i just take it with my phone yeah you know, it's the expression, the best camera is the one that's always with you. Yeah. And with the phones going, like getting so good at it, it's like, um, like you said, it's, it's getting uh, more and more um, weird to actually have like a actual camera, like you said. Yeah. And, and uh, I, even though I much prefer taking photos with a camera, because I actually absolutely love, it's like with the mechanical keyboards, I absolutely love the process of making photos. And, uh, you know, uh, I also, this is uh, one of the reasons also why I use the Fujifilm cameras, because they have this, uh, they, they might have this uh, audio of being, you know, those hipster cameras that try <laughs> to look old fashioned. But actually, what I love about them is that you have knobs for everything that matters. So you do have an aperture ring that clicks, you have a ring, like you, you have a knob for times, you have a knob for ISOs. And uh, it's such a pleasure. I, w I used to be a, a Nikon shooter and, and I loved and I still have a DSLR, but, uh, you know, uh, having this tactile interface, it's, it's, it's a kind of like mechanical keyboards. And it's also a kind of like my, my car I'm driving now, a Mazda 3. And it's so refreshing to have a car that somebody actually spend a lot of time making the user interface so good like all of the knobs are very distinguished so i can operate them without looking they have nice clicking tactile feedback they are like mm -hmm. the opposite of tesla which is yeah. you know uh tablet yeah. uh, interface that you have to look at and you have like glass that you that you knock on and and both uh, Mazda 3 and uh my Fujifilm camera they they have this you know very kind of nice to operate interfaces. Yeah, that's the um, common theme. Like even if you look at the, the way phones now work, tablets, uh, even some laptops now, everything is touchscreen and there's almost no feedback from like uh, mm -hmm. from any phone. There is like um, stuff the, the iPhone does. Um, um, I don't know, a haptic feedback, I think it's called. And that mm -hmm. like it is something, but... Um, it depends. So if you have it in a case, it's much weaker. If you, if you, I don't know, have it on a table, you won't feel it at all. And there's a lot of this tactile thing that is getting lost in this, um, glass, uh, glass world. And, um, I, like, while I actually, I, I absolutely adore Tesla and I want a Tesla 3, like, mm -hmm. really badly, I don't know if I could use that thing it's like the the user experience is very weird because you don't have anything it's just like one touch screen in the middle of the car and that's just weird that's not how it's supposed to be yeah uh, so uh, one of the th i know i'm not sure whether iphones still have them because i never have an iphone but one of the things i really envy is the physical switch for muting yeah like, yeah 
there used to be one at least it, it is it's, i think that it's not going away ever because that's the, okay. yeah one of the best thing they they figured out that, that's like a perfect example you don't even have to take your phone out of your pocket yeah. to check whether it's muted like i have to look at the i i have to take it and my phone into my hand activate it to see whether it's muted it's it's a weird thing but like since you brought it up i'm gonna mention it um the the iphone the first iphone was introduced on my birthday and of course i was like really into it um and the thing is that mute switch was the biggest so yeah sure like oh the keyboard was hard to do on the touch screen that was like everything was like groundbreaking but that mute switch was like when i see it, it was like how come no one else ever did this it's so obvious it's so obvious we all use it like every time i went to school i had nokia 510 i think at that point whatever mm -hmm. it's like i had to hold the c key and then like the menu will pop up and i would have to like find the, the mute and then okay and when i was leaving school exactly the same thing and it took like a minute to do it and like that mute switch is so intuitive it's so how come no one else thought of this? Like, it's just crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I just recalled uh, this is... Uh, so I got my first mobile phone, I think exactly 20 years ago for my 19th birthday, I think, or the year before. But mm -hmm. it was a Bosch phone that didn't have a clock. Can you imagine <laughs> a phone, a mobile phone without a clock? Like, it's like the most... Like, other than people who actually like wearing watches, like nobody has a watches anymore. Like they yeah. have their mobile phone. And yep. I remember, uh, you know, getting this Bosch phone. And then I think like half a year later, everybody had mobile phones and they all had clocks. And I was like, why doesn't mine have it? Because <laughs> like you even have this time on the network traffic. Like it's, you don't even have to, you know. And there was no app for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, definitely. Yeah. But the phone, you know, it was like a week-long battery time, so... Um, did you ever have uh, a Leica camera? Because they are also, like, very much uh, the hipster camera, and they um, uh, pay a lot of attention to how everything feels and, and works. And, and Yeah, so, so I, I never had a Leica camera. I uh, And I would probably, if ever, I would probably want to not necessarily have the, the newest and greatest, because... They, they feel like, uh, you know, like you pay a, a huge premium for like definitely good uh, tool, but not necessarily, you know, so much better. Oh, yeah, but yeah. also, uh, also it's a little bit as with the arrows on my mechanical keyboards. Like I actually don't mind having autofocus on my cameras and like as we're notorious for you know just not having uh autofocus by by design right all of the mm -hmm. glasses were uh manual focus and uh, manual focus is awesome like manual focus with the current assists where you can uh, if you have live view or in you know uh mirrorless cameras but by default you can have all kinds of uh way of the camera telling you where the stuff is focused and it's, it's awesome. But also, you know, I, I have a three year old, three and a half year old kid and photographing her uh, when she moves around without really good continuous autofocus would be really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, but I also like uh, what I uh, actually would probably uh, use that I don't think anybody else does is there's a, like a tip M cameras, which are monochrome by default. So they have yeah. only monochrome sensors and they have, 
like obviously so uh, so many more points that because like they don't have to have the matrix of uh, color like green, uh, red, and blue points uh, yeah, pixels. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that would be a nice camera to do. But also like Leica is, you know, it's 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 like really really good on. Mm, kind of pushing the boundaries how far your uh, hipster slash uh, <laughs> kind of uh, I don't know narrowness can go and I don't mind it at all I actually think it's it's great that they do it but you know like they, they have now a digital camera that doesn't have a uh, the screen at the back so you, you get this old feeling of you can do digital photo <laughs> digital photos but you only see them once you download them like yeah, I think this is also some like they are pushing back at technology and um, they are using the power of their brand to do it. Yeah. And I completely understand and I agree with you. Like I would not use a camera like that. I um, I believe in technology. Like it's it's here to move things forward. Mm -hmm. But I do really appreciate appreciate what they do with their like um, like uh, the image quality out of Leica is distinguishable. Like it is different. Um, and I know way back when I still followed the photo news more closely, there was a Sigma was trying to come out with a sensor who had um, all three, so red, green, and blue on the same pixel, on the same dot. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that technology is progressing, if it went anywhere or, or anything, but the idea was the same. Like you are losing some, um, so you are losing some content because you have to have physical switches uh, like red, green, and blue, or actually two greens, but yeah details yeah so, so this is this is also a super interesting thing because if, if if i can go on a tangent but this is the pearl fashion podcast so yeah yeah i mean this this is the, the podcast is about going on a tangent <laughs> so so i'm gonna do this so uh like almost every cmos sensor has this layer of four subpixels where two greens are in two opposite corners and there's a blue and a red one yeah. and uh this also means that this pattern of four pixels, two by two, repeats on the whole sensor, which means that there is a, I have no way how, to, I have no idea how to pronounce it, M-O-I-R-E effect. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, so, so they, they actually have additional softening filters that uh, kind of, uh, you know, m make the, the image less sharp mm -hmm. just because to combat this. And what Fuji did, their pixels are not two by two, they are three by three, huh. and they have five green pixels in the shape of X. So all corners and the middle ones are green. Uh, and then the blue ones are on left and right, and the red ones are on the top and the bottom. If you think about a tic-tac-toe board, mm -hmm, right? You have mm -hmm. three by three. And then the next group of mm, three by three pixels uh, below and to the side of this group has green uh, has red and blue replaced so reds and are on the left and right and uh, blues are at the top and bottom which means the pattern that repeats is not two by two but actually six by six because there are like four uh, if, if you put four of those three by three next to each other that's the first pattern that actually repeats because right, the, right so right. they they got away with the anti-aliasing uh, filter and the images at least for me are like the raw images are visibly sharper 
mm-hmm. out of Fujifilm cameras. So interesting. In the meantime, I found the sensor. So it's called Fovion X3 sensor. Um, okay. It was developed by a company called Fovion and is then was then bought by Sigma. And um, as far as I found, they are still sort of doing it, but Sigma never had a big share in cameras. They have quite a big share in like lenses, but uh, cameras, I don't know. So yeah, the idea is that. They have um, three photodiodes, but they are stacked vertically. So, oh. um, so it's it's a interesting tech. I don't think it went anywhere, but um, yeah, you are also getting rid of the Moira uh, mm-hmm. or whatever, <laughs> however you pronounce that effect um, with with this, and in theory, it should give you much sharper images. That's 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 super cool, and also I, I think the next breakthrough will be those sensors that can read out the whole sensor in one operation because one of the more frustrating things about uh, the current state is that you can either have a mechanical shutter which can go to say one eight thousandth of a second uh, or you can have an electronic shutter which basically means there is a readout of the sensor like the shutter Mm -hmm. is open and you read out but the problem is with rolling shutter (laughs) the current technology you read it row by row which means you can have like one thirty-two thousandth of a second, but it takes one tenth of a second to read the whole sensor. Which means if you have any kind of movement, it gets like really strangely, uh, you know, distorted yeah, yeah. in the final picture. But the moment we and there are some prototypes now; they are still like very early stage. But the moment we have sensors that we can read out in one go. I think that will be a huge breakthrough when we finally have... Uh, sometimes the uh, effects of that are really profound, like taking a photo of a propeller of the plane yes. usually yes. gives you like really interesting photos. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and speaking about fractions, you have this project called 1 over 125, or do you pronounce it differently? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's 1 125th. Okay. It's one of the like typical times in cameras. So w- what is it and wh- what... What does the name imply? Do you shoot everything in like one one twenty fifth? Okay, so this is uh, one of my oldest projects that I still do, which is basically a photo blog that I update now and then. Uh, in in perfect times, I do it uh, daily. In like typical like times, there were like I think there were multiple years when I didn't update it. So it's like all over the place when it comes to uh, the frequency I updated. But it's uh, I recently discovered that. It's a surprisingly good proxy for my uh, kind of mental feeling. Like this kind of very tiny creativity is something that I really need in my life. And you know, the the day the, the months when I do update it daily or every other day are basically an outcome of time when my uh, like I, I feel so much better mentally. And when I have a little of you know months on end that I don't update it are usually the the worst months in in my life. But um, mm-hmm. but the the project is so one one hundred twenty fifth is one of the typical shutter times, and uh, I I named it uh, this way uh, first because. Uh, uh, because that's you know that was way back when I was still photographing a uh, film cameras and I uh, I think I just switched from a Zenit to a Pentax camera 
And uh, the, like, the actual main reason was that I wanted to have this clever trick of putting this uh, as a part of the URL. So, you know, you have slashes in URLs. Ah. And uh, one slash 125 was ah, basically sounded nice. like a... Uh, back then, I, I used a different domain, but it's now justl.net <laughs> slash one slash 125. But also, on a, a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, I realized at some point this is about the ratio of the photos that are uh, decent uh, to keep. <laughs> <laughs> of, like Probably every hundred photo is good enough for me to, to just not delete it outright. I don't believe they are any good. Like If I compare uh, what I shoot with, with people that I, I follow, I like I I don't feel like my photos are are any good, but I the also the process of editing them is such a uh, it's you know it takes thirty seconds or maybe a minute if I want to do some kind of uh, more uh, more complicated edits, but it's it's uh, such a nice tiny creative process that that just. You know, if I had a really uh, dull day or I'm like extremely tired and I can't do any mental uh, processing, like mm. just program for fun or, or even play a strategic game, then, then you know, editing a photo is a perfect pastime. Mm. So this is another reason why I do it. And also, you know, having a kid is actually <laughs> what, what made me switch the mm, cameras because uh, when when she was... You know, half a year old, and I was hiding behind my DSLR. Uh, she would basically start to be very nervous. Where, where did that go? <laughs> so, uh, so switching to a mirrorless camera, which is tiny, and uh, also, uh, like I, I never thought I will use the back screen for composing a photo, and I still have a very hard requirement of having a viewfinder that I can immerse myself into and look through. But actually, having a tilted screen turned out to be extremely useful for all kinds of photos. Like I put a camera on the ground and I flip the screen and I can take the photo from the ground level. Yeah. And uh, I never, never would guess that like probably a fifth of my photos are taken with the screen because I can do something like oh, that's sit, sit at a table. Like we're sitting on the diff two sides of the table, like not uh, opposed each other, but ne next to each other. So like at the right angle mm -hmm. and uh, I'm doing something and my kid does something and I can take my camera and move it to the side of me, flip the screen and make a photo of her from her side. So like the, the photo is, for example, the camera is, for example, to my left. Mm -hmm. And uh, she doesn't really notice it that much. And you have a very nice perspective that you couldn't get without actually physically moving over, which would ruin the moment. Yeah, it's surprisingly many photos I do this way. I, I had no clue because I, I was and and still I'm uh, like a hardlined viewfinder person. I need a viewfinder <laughs> on my camera to. Oh, for, for I this to absolutely be, to be understand. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, but but this, this, and, and you know the the photos you you take for example when you're in a crowd and you want to have a photo with your hands stretched up having the ability to flip the screen down and actually be able to compose rather than, mm. you know, uh, cross your fingers and hope one of the 20 shots will be yeah, any good. That's, is, that's is what I did. Also just have a very wide lens, put it up, try a couple of different and then just uh, find the best and crop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> you make do. And yeah, why don't you use Instagram to showcase your photos? So uh, I never kind of got into Instagram. I don't. So... Uh, 
I don't really care about showcasing my photos. I mean, you post them on Twitter. So. I automatically post them. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so uh, my website, I actually I'm rewriting it in Jekyll now, but it's in Middleman, which is another static website. And I just have a rake task but that publishes this, pushes this to GitHub, which hosts its own GitHub pages. It's now, it's then proxied through Cloudflare. <laughs> and then uh, I just have a small uh, rake task that basically checks whether the photo actually got all the way to Cloudflare and then sends a tweet with that photo. But uh, yeah, I, 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 so that's a good question. Like, why do I post them to Twitter, but I don't use Instagram? So uh, I think I would spend a lot of time on Instagram because I'm a, I'm a sucker for, you know, watching other people's photos that I like. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that that's one thing. And the other, uh, I actually almost did create an Instagram account but that was exactly when Instagram was bought by Facebook. And I decided that, <laughs> you know, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook. So, uh, you know, giving them all of my photos just for fun and for the likes. And also, like, I like my photos cropped the way I crop them. And Instagram back then was like square only. And yeah. even now it's, you know, like there, there's a whole photography podcasts that say like how to add borders to your photos so that when they are square on Instagram, they actually have the ratios you want them. So, and I like, I don't question this choice of Instagram. I think it's an interesting choice. I think it's an interesting aesthetic. I actually do crop my photos to a square now and then. It's a limit of the medium. Tack. I, I, I think I like to have a little bit of, of more of control. And, you mm -hmm. know, I've been, I saw so many social networks that, uh, you know, no, nobody uses MySpace anymore, right? <laughs> but uh, but the I, I do have a need of self-hosting this yeah. anyway. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. But you could still like cross post, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I could, and, and that, like that would be the only way, right? I, I, mm -hmm. I could automatically post to Instagram just as I do as I do with Twitter. But uh, yeah, it's it just like I don't necessarily want the Instagram app on my phone for like Facebook reasons. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and I actually the, the the few Instagram accounts I follow are through a RSS proxy that uh, third party people who wow. create RSS feeds. So I I, I follow them in my. Uh, newsreader basically that's interesting i didn't even know that was a thing <laughs> well yeah like the moment google pulled the plug on google reader oh. the rss died but there is a wonderful project that is called newsblur which is an uh basically it's a google reader on steroids so it's a open source so you can self-host b you can pay for having it hosted and it's like three dollars a month so not not a lot of money and uh, the absolutely adorable thing for me is a it's open source so i feel like good about using it and i can actually you know self-host if i want and actually can support it it's i think it's in python and uh, but the huge thing there are a lot of there is a lot of added value if you actually get the hosted version because uh, uh, it's it lets you uh, grade the stuff that you're reading and then it can filter, it can do like good suggestions of uh, what kind of news items from the news feeds uh, you might be interested in. I never used it because I'm a completionist and I, if I follow <laughs> someone, I want to read everything they, they, they read and I want to watch all of their photos. But uh, like objectively, this is a really interesting feature because it's like 100% open source. It's not like a hosted only feature that, that you have to pay for. But 
it works best when your Newsblower instance is used by multiple people because it uh, it learns uh, about the topicality of the stuff you read by uh, what the other people do with that. So there's there, there's this wonderful model of 100% open source, but it's actually beneficial for you to have this hosted with other people because then the algorithm uh, gets to learn so much better. Mm. Oh, that, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, uh, as as we are brand approaching the uh, end of the podcast, mm. I have the uh, usual question, as you know now. <laughs> um, what would be like three books or um, like articles or whatever that you would recommend to someone? Okay, so uh, I was agonizing over it ever since you invited me uh, like last <laughs> week. So it was a week of like, I can never come up with three. And now I have five. So, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> but they're all like uh, really short. So uh, one is a, a talk by Greg Young called The Art of Destroying Software. And uh, I, I, I saw it a uh, very long time ago and it's, it's from four years ago. And then I rewatched it like, usually once a year. And mm -hmm. it can feel like a lot of a tongue-in-cheek talk about, you know, how you should write your systems in a way that are rewritable. But uh, the more I rewatch it, the more I actually agree with it. If you if you take the, the right approach, which is basically if you compose your systems from small pieces that very clearly Uh, interface with other pieces. And this can be, you know, small classes. This, this can be small microservices. This can be whatever, you know, uh, good command line interfaces uh, that, that communicate over Unix pipes or, or standard in and standard out, whatever. Like, if you do this, then actually rewriting those small pieces is a viable approach. And I actually started doing this. And again, it's actually worked. Like, if you have small pieces, then quite often it's a viable approach to just rewrite this small piece. And it's actually a faster approach than adjusting it for the need at hand. So I yeah. highly recommend that talk. I have a book recommendation. I think uh, a lot of people know Douglas Adams from his uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but there mm -hmm. is a wonderful book from him called The Last Chance to See, which is uh, a book he wrote with Mark Carwardine. Uh, which is about their trip around the world uh, to uh, find the last uh, dying uh, species. And it sounds like extremely not interesting, but it is still a Douglas Adams book. It's extremely funny. Okay. It's really, uh, really well written and uh, it's clever. And uh, it's at the same time, it, it shows you a lot of history of, of uh, interesting places. And uh, I have a... Uh, music recommendation because I wanted to have like oh, that's whole, good. That's good. Uh, the whole trinity, uh, the whole spectra. Yeah, yeah and this is uh, this is not like objectively good music. It's not high culture, but I really, really enjoy uh, artist who is known by Professor Elemental, Professor Elemental. Okay, and uh, he's uh, a chap hop genre of music. Uh, it's and chap hop is uh, a kind of hip hop that is sung from the point of view of an English gentleman, and it's it's again uh, it, of course it has its own issues as most you know uh, opinionated uh, artists, but <laughs> uh, but I I really it's it's very funny it's clever it has tons of British humor 
Him in particular, there are other chap hop artists like Mr. B, but uh, Professor Elemental in particular is also have this aura of steampunk to his songs. So oh, nice. uh, it's uh, he's basically this uh, this uh, his persona is of this uh, you know living in a castle, mad scientists who do all kinds of steampunk experiments on animals, but also do a lot of like uh, late 19th century travels around the world. And this is like typical steampunk setting, but it's, it's funny. It's energetic. I love listening to this when I work because it's, it's just a cool thing. Okay. And I have two quick uh, podcast suggestions, if that can be squeezed in. That's, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So they are two, two very different ones. One is, uh, a podcast that only ever had four episodes. And I hope they will have another episode because those were like, some of them were a year apart. So I, I, I just hope that they're just appearing when they happen. <laughs> and uh, this is the, the podcast is called Why Are Computers? And uh, the, the four episodes are with James Coglan, James Edward Gray II, Sandy Metz and Chris Patuzzo. Oh, wow. That's a nice lineup. <laughs> and they are really, really, really good. And uh, the other podcast, which is from the... Uh, exact opposite of the spectrum is Langsam Gesprochene Nachrichten, which is Deutsche Welle podcast. It's basically uh, German news that are spoken slowly. So if you're learning the language, then <laughs> this is like basically, you know, uh, five minutes daily of spoken German that, that you can actually listen to. Wow. And the, the funny story is that, so, so I'm listening to podcasts at one and a half speed. <laughs> and I realized after like a month that I'm actually listening to the slow spoken German news <laughs> at a one and a half speed, like all my other podcasts. And I still <laughs> actually get to pick up some words from that. So I, I highly recommend it. Uh, so that basically means you could listen to any German podcast just on normal speed. No, no, they, they actually do speak much faster. <laughs> um, well, uh, thank you for, for recommendations and for your time uh this has been an uh, absolute pleasure to have you on so yeah thank you i uh, thank you so much we uh, like i think we both had a great time hopefully people won't you know get too uh, bored by all the technical details but i <laughs> I, I highly highly uh, recommend listening to also the the past episodes of uh, pearl passion podcast thank because you. it's it's so amazing uh, you know even with people that you know, at least to some extent, uh, like, you know, Catherine Vu, it, it was so interesting to, to hear what happens in her life that I had no clue about. And, uh, or, you know, the uh, Aaron Cruz podcast uh, yeah. also, like, I had no clue he was a chef <laughs> before. And <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> I found in research. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much, Miha, for coming up with this idea because it's like really, really good podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, have, a, have a nice remaining of the day and um, see you soon at some, at some conference, I guess. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Thanks. See you. Bye. All right, this is my interview with Piotr. Parallel Passion is still a new podcast. Sharing with your friends and followings helps us a lot. Just send out a tweet or post a link on your Facebook. You want your friends to enjoy a good podcast, right? If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, I'd love to see a new review there. We have a couple, but there's never too many. If you use a different app, you should rate, favorite, like, or whatever your podcast app of choice supports. If you enjoyed the show, also consider supporting it via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash parpasspot. That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D. 
or open the show notes in your podcast app and follow the Patreon link there. Every dollar goes to cover the hosting costs and hopefully one day new audio gear. Thank you. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We are at PurposePod on all of them. All the links from this episode are in the show notes in your podcast app and on our website parallelpassion.com slash 14. Thank you for listening and have a passionate day.